Good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. Good evening from Israel. Um, usually we like to talk about uh, internal, uh, political, uh, partly uh, diplomatic affairs, but really with a focus on uh, you know, what's going on in Israeli politics behind the scenes. Uh, today we're going to obviously uh, with what's going on in Ukraine, uh, you know, go in a slightly different direction and talk about uh, Israel's place or Israel's role or how Israel sees the conflict uh, uh, in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it, it's been built uh, by many commentators in Israel sort of as uh, what are Israel's interests here versus, you know, so it's moral duty. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, Israel does have um, many interests involved here that other countries wouldn't necessarily. Primarily, um, it's related to what's happening on uh, Israel's northeast border uh, over Syria. Uh, what's being called the uh, war between campaigns, uh, which is basically, you know, Israel is not, uh, has not uh, officially gone to war with Syria for many years, since 1973. But for quite a while now, for a number of years now, uh, Israel has uh, needed to ensure that um, the Iranian forces, whether it's uh, directly Iranian forces, whether it's Hezbollah or other proxy groups, do not get a foothold, especially near, uh, near the Golan, near the Israeli border, and especially uh, Iranian uh, uh, weapons shipments that come in and then make their way across to Hezbollah and Lebanon. These, uh, some of these, uh, the equipment that's being sent has allowed Hezbollah to be built up to one of the most one of the strongest armies in the world, stronger than most uh, European nations. And uh, Iran has certainly, with the nuclear weapons, and as it speeds towards uh, full nuclear weapons possible, potentially, uh, capability, um, it wants to ensure that its reaction forces uh, in Lebanon, perhaps even in Syria, are fully armed uh, uh, for leverage as a threat to Israel to ensure that if Israel should ever need to take uh, the, the daunting but necessary steps to take out the Iranian nuclear program, or at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, damage it, um, that Hezbollah would be able to, you know, really uh, uh, try and gain Israel's attention at such an important stage and really uh, try to inflict a lot of pain on Israel. So what we, what we see in our northern border with Lebanon and Syria, Hezbollah and Iran, uh, is really probably one of Israel's greatest uh, threats, uh, which is touching on the existential threat of the Iranian nuclear umbrella. And for a number of years, ever since uh, Russia basically became the dominant force in Syria, there's been an understanding of what's been called a deconfliction mechanism, uh, which allows Israel to uh, have basically have um, uh, you know aircraft sorties over Syria and to bomb what it deems necessary, uh, whether it's a, you know, a, a military hardware that, as I said, is coming in from Tehran uh, regularly, uh, but it's uh, 
Hezbollah fighters who try to move equipment across the border to Lebanon. Israel is regularly flying over Syria and basically stopping these possible game changers uh, in its proxy war against uh, Hezbollah. Russia have basically allowed for this to happen. Uh, there's a lot of uh, speculation exactly why Russia allows it to happen, probably because uh, while Iran is in Syria and Russia is in Syria, as I said, it's the dominant force, um, Russia would be quite happy for Iran to leave, but it's not going to openly go into a conflict, so it's happy for Israel to do its dirty work. That's the sort of understanding. As long as Russian troops are not affected, there was, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, a year or two ago, where uh, some Syrian anti-aircraft uh, missiles in response to an Israeli attack uh, fired on and I think even destroyed uh, a, a Russian uh, airplane. And the Russians were very quick to blame Israel for that. So as long as uh, Russians are not injured or harmed or targeted, it allows Israel uh, free space. And as I said, that is not a small thing. This is one of Israel's greatest threats on its northern border. So the Russian element is absolutely important. What we have seen though, First of all, it should be understood that Israel is playing a very unique role in this conflict. It's probably the only, certainly the only democratic country in the world that has a direct line uh, to both the Ukrainian president and the Russian president. Tonight, remarkably, out of all nations in the world, we saw Prime Minister uh, uh, Naftali Bennett speak to both uh, Zelensky and Putin uh, within two hours, relaying messages to each other. It seemed almost absurd weeks ago uh, I was even mocked by the opposition when uh, the coalition were talking about potentially offering uh, Jerusalem or Israel or Israel-Israeli mediation uh, between Russia and Ukraine. The opposition in Israel mocked the idea that uh, Naftali Bennett was seen as a serious international player and no one really cared about him, no one really listened to him. Well, uh, certainly that's not proving true because in the last few days, uh, Bennett has spoken multiple times to both uh, leaders. And while it's uh, clear that you know, it's not necessarily where negotiations are taking place, certainly messages are being transmitted. And the fact is that both leaders are ready, willing, and able to speak to him. So there is a unique element to that. Uh, further to these conversations, uh, other world leaders like Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau also uh, called Naftali Bennett, and it's almost certain that he called specifically to find out what was going on, maybe even to relay messages uh, from the West. So. Israel is actually playing quite an outsized role, it seems, uh, at this point. We don't know exactly what was going on uh, in those conversations, but it's clear that, um, that both leaders do find an open uh, ear uh, in Israel. Uh, as I said, very few other countries in the world is that happening at the moment. Um, obviously, excuse me, uh, President Zelensky is asking for a lot more from Israel. He's asking for greater condemnation of Russia. He's asking for arms from Israel. Israel, at this point, and I think it will probably continue, is not going to give arms. Um, Israel is going to give and has given uh, humanitarian aid, and there's even talk of setting up a field hospital. That would be one of the first uh, in Ukraine itself, and not just on the borders. Israel has uh, set up um, uh, you know, medical tents and humanitarian aid on uh, over the border in Poland, in uh, Moldova, and other places. Um, but it can't get involved uh, any more than that. While some countries in Europe have given uh, aid, military aid, mostly defensive, and mostly it's, let's be honest, it's symbolic because, you know, the, the sort of um, uh, 
amounts that have been given are not going to necessarily turn the tide. But it is more symbolic in the fact that Germany, and by the way, the German chancellor is in Israel at the moment, or at least he was today, has decided for the first time uh, in decades, uh, perhaps even since the end of the Second World War, to actually give arms to, uh, to a, uh, a place of conflict. Uh, so definitely the rules are changing uh, around us. And Israel has found itself probably in one of the uh, slimmest of tightropes. It's really trying to, you know, trying to look after its own interest, which every nation in the world would do, while trying to take the moral, uh, you know, the, the, as, a, as a moral duty to stand by uh, the people of Ukraine. Uh, today, we saw something very interesting in the UN. Um, over the weekend, there was a, an attempt by the Americans to censure uh, the Russians at the Security Council. Um, and as we know, Russia, like America, has a veto, and it was obvious that the Russians would veto it. Um, but the Americans tried to get signatures from as many countries as possible to back them up. Israel at that point demurred, uh, and as did many other countries. Israel sat back on the excuse of that, uh, whether it's true or not, uh, well, it is true, but whether that was an excuse or uh, the reality that uh, Russia would veto it anyway, uh, but today in the, uh, in the General Assembly, Israel joined 140 other nations in condemning Russia. That's quite interesting and significant because it wasn't a given. Uh, there's at least 30 odd countries who abstained. And I believe five countries, including, including Russia, Cuba, North Korea, that, that uh, voted against. Um, but what is happening in Israel, as we can see, is that there's sort of, there's a to a certain extent, a good cop and a neutral cop, let's say. Uh, as I said, uh, Naftali Bennett is trying to keep uh, good relations with both of them. At the end of the day, Naftali Bennett knows that when this war has finished, and who knows when it will be finished, Israel will still have to deal with Russia on, on our doorstep and then with the interests uh, and the security-related uh, uh, arenas that come along with that. On the other hand, we have um, uh, Foreign Minister Yale Lapid, is very much taking the sort of good cop. He has, I'd say, the good cop, the good cop in terms of the West and against Russia. He has actively mentioned uh, Russia in his statements. He has uh, condemned Russian aggression. Uh, he has used that language. Um, and he was the one who ordered the, uh, the Israeli representative at the UN uh, to join those 140 other nations in, uh, in condemning Russia. So uh, that's I think a very careful uh, plan that the two are taking, where one is more open in the condemnation and allowing Israel to take a freer hand in the international forum against Russia, whereas Prime Minister Bennett, who again, you know, he has to look at the wider picture, has to understand that you know Russia and Vladimir Putin are going to be there after this war. Uh, our problems, Israel's problems with Iran, uh, with Hezbollah and Syria, are still going to be there after after this war is over. So we have to uh, ensure that uh, at the highest levels that that relationship remains intact, uh, for the, as I said, for the safety of Israeli citizens and the security of the state of Israel. While this is all happening, there's obviously very, there's, there's messages that Russia is sending Israel to keep up in, in the lead up to the war. It should be remembered that the defense minister uh, came to Syria uh, and there was uh, various maneuvers in the Eastern uh, uh, Mediterranean some argue that these were a message uh, to Israel to stay out of it because we could make life a lot more difficult for you. Uh, the message was received. Also, 
another uh, area that Israel has to worry about is Russia uh, can and is supplying both Syria and Iran with air defenses, and specifically the S-300, which is, continues to be Israel's worst nightmare, especially in Iran, because that could change the calculations and change the game for any uh, Israeli future response if it feels that Iran is on the cusp of nuclear weapons capability. And Russia have threatened, more than threatened, have agreed to supply uh, both Iran and Syria with advanced uh, weaponry, which would make it far more difficult for Israel uh, to launch bombing raids against either country. Um, and, and these threats are always hanging over Israel. So again, these are all important elements that Israel has to keep in, uh, keep in mind. The final element is what's going on in Vienna, is the JCPOA. Don't forget the Russians and Americans are sitting together uh, with the British and the French and the Germans are sitting together on the same side of the table, uh, sort of, you know, against Iran or, you know, in negotiations with Iran, returning to uh, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. And Iran is, uh, Russia is a significant player there. It's obviously, as I've uh, said in previous uh, 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 webinars, that uh, Russia and China are definitely in the Iranian camp uh, more than the sort of more antagonistic nations in the West. But Russia, as I said, has an open ear to Israel. Israel uh, and Russia uh, have spoken frequently about Iran, not to say that uh, we've, ne we've necessarily changed opinions uh, with uh, President Putin on Iran, but it's still a, it's such a significant arena, uh, the Iranian nuclear weapons issue, that Israel also does have to take that into account. On the other hand, Israel, of course, has to take into account its good relations with the West and primarily the United States. And uh, Israel did feel a bit of pushback when it did not respond favorably uh, to the US's uh, uh, UN Security Council gambit. But uh, what we are hearing behind the scenes is there is an understanding in the US, and I would probably suggest elsewhere, that they understand Israel's uh, predicament and precarious position here. And to a certain extent, there's even an appreciation that Israel can play a role, uh, play a role in perhaps passing messages uh, between uh, the Ukrainian leadership and the Russian uh, leadership. So Israel is, is really probably, certainly more than any democratic country uh, in the world, and probably more than most around the world, has a very uh, sensitive position. It is trying to, uh, you know, uh, 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 navigate this extremely narrow uh, tightrope that is that it is uh, that it is walking at the moment, but at the end of the day, it is necessary because, like all nations, it has to look after its own security, uh, safety, and well-being. Uh, just a quick note before we move on about Israeli politics. Again, we've seen a government that is not fully functioning. We've seen um, other members of uh, the government this week. Uh, even today, who have decided not to vote for the government, uh, not to vote with the coalition in the Knesset. Another week, another party has decided uh, to flex its muscles and say it's not getting what it's supposed to and, what, and has taken uh, uh, necessary measures in the Knesset. It's not voting with the coalition. And as we spoke about before, with a, with a uh, one seat majority, any single person can wreck that. Uh, this week or today, we saw near Orbach with the Yamina party. We decided not to vote for something, and the, the law fell. Now we're talking about uh, Meretz's uh, Nitzan Horowitz, who's not, 
who doesn't feel he's got he's getting enough funding uh, for the health uh, ministry, and he's blaming finance minister Victor Lehman for that, and he's also threatened to take um, repercussions within the coalition. And don't forget, there's only one more week until the sort of uh, the, the, the spring uh, break, and they're trying very much uh, to get through a lot of these laws, especially ones that they haven't been able to get through in the last few weeks. Um, we did see extraordinary scenes in the Knesset over the last 24 hours. We saw MKs being pulled out of the plenum. We saw MKs tussling with, um, with the ushers, uh, Knesset ushers who, who, are, who have been instructed by, like in all parliaments, you have uh, the speaker who has the right to remove a, a member of parliament from, uh, from the plenum floor. And when they refuse to do so, the ushers have to come in, physically remove them. And we've seen that used quite a lot. We also saw, uh, you know, uh, really members of Knesset really going at each other. It, it, the, the atmosphere is, is very hostile at the moment between the coalition and the opposition, even to the point where, as I said, the Chancellor of Germany uh, is in the country and remarkably the opposition, uh, perhaps it's not remarkable anymore, used that uh, to try and push down one of the coalition's bills. Um, they basically tried to fast track a bill that was going to be voted on and said that we don't need to hear any of the, um, the, uh, the laws itself. We don't need to discuss any of the, the differences of opinion on any of the uh, articles within the law just to get the vote hurried up because they knew Naftali Bennett was meeting with the chancellor and couldn't suddenly leave in the middle of a meeting to go and vote. So they took advantage of a, a, a global event, an international uh, meeting at the highest level uh, to try and basically scuttle uh, a government uh, bill. And that just shows uh, where we are today in Israeli politics, that even with you know, a, a world crisis, international diplomacy, uh, one of the major players, the, the Germans, came to Israel in the middle of it. Um, and uh, the opposition used that as an excuse to try and uh, uh, scuttle one of the coalition's bills. So that's where we are, unfortunately, in Israeli politics. And I am happy now to, uh, to answer any questions. I would say before we do go to questions, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the actual war, so please don't ask me any questions specifically about the war itself, but I, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions about Israel's role and, and everything that I spoke about earlier. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Um, the first one in from Adam Perry. Can you see Israel enforcing sanctions against Russia to replicate the U.S. and Europe, like banning aeroflot flights to is in Israeli airspace? Well, thank you. That's my brother's question. So, uh, <laughs> um, as I said, I mean, it all goes back to what I talked about during the first 10-15 minutes. And the fact is that Israel has that tightrope. It, it's 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 very nice for many countries around the world to be able to take this moral stand and for those nations far outside of the theater of war or any theater of war, uh, like the UK, like the US, like Western Europe, or at least uh, the more southern parts of Western Europe. Uh, it doesn't come with too many ramifications. As I said, for Israel, it's part and parcel and connected to what Israel sees as an existential threat. Uh, you know, uh, Iran, Iranian nuclear weapons, uh, using uh, Hezbollah as a proxy to attack Israel, has uh, an army stronger than most of Europe, uh, which is being armed regularly. And the fact that Israel needs Russian permission to be able to uh, depreciate uh, those threats is not to be taken lightly. So some of the gestures which the West uh, is taking are very nice, but in, in reality, Israel's security 
and the safety of its uh, uh, citizens uh, are certainly primary in uh, Prime Minister Bennett's thinking and the government as a whole. I have a feeling the answer will be the same to these, but uh, in terms of the finance, financial freezes, would Israel be able to do that? Eric and Anthony Field ask about those. Um, again, um, when we're talking about financial, don't forget there's, there's another important layer to this, which again, uh, Israel's quite unique in the fact that we have a high, very high percentage of citizens who also are dual citizens of Russia who have close family, friends, business uh, in Russia, and that has to be taken into account. So, you know, there, there are many people who want to go back, back and forth. There are many people who go back and forth, by the way, just like there's lots of Americans uh, living in, in Israel who, who travel back and forth for business or familial reasons. Uh, so it'd be very difficult to stop flights uh, with Russia because, you know, it's quite simply a, a, you know, a, a civil issue, a civilian issue. And um, so Israel has to take uh, those uh, factors in, into consideration when it makes uh, decisions like those. Understood. Uh, so you did just mention the, the Russian speaking community and uh, Peter Chu asks, among the Russian speaking community in Israel, how much sympathy is there for the Russian invasion of the Ukraine? Is the, this community influenced by Russian state TV? Well, first of all, that, that's I, I thank you for uh, phrasing it the way you did because uh, Russian-speaking Israelis come from Russia, they come from Ukraine, they come from Moldova, they come from Lithuania, Latvia, uh, probably other countries that I haven't thought of. Uh, so each one, according to where they come from, I've actually I was in the Knesset on Monday and I actually spoke to a few people that I know in different places. And it, you, you find very, it's, it's fascinating for me that you find very different responses. The Ukrainians are obviously with friends, with family, with a certain level of patriotism for their former country, are obviously hard and fast behind uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, the ones who come from Russia, first of all, it's not just about Russian state propaganda if they, if they are uh, watching, but also they're speaking to family members, uh, you know. And they're maybe hearing their concerns, they're hearing perhaps a narrative, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but they are hearing a narrative which isn't heard as much in the West. Uh, so they are, let's just say, more, a little bit more sympathetic. Uh, some of them, you know, are no great fans of Vladimir Putin and some of his policies, but they're certainly more sympathetic as a whole to Russia's interest and what they see as uh, its battle against the West and NATO encroachment and uh, breaking the deals as Vladimir Putin has uh, spoken about many, many times that, uh, you know, his one of his reasons for this is the fact that NATO five times encroached on areas where it was agreed that they wouldn't. And they feel that having these missiles and missile systems on the doorstep threatens their stability and their security. Again, these are things that I'm hearing. I'm not, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying these are some of the things. But I, I think on the whole that there is a lot of sympathy amongst the Russian speaking uh, community. We've seen big demonstrations outside the Russian embassy in Tel Aviv. And interestingly, obviously, I wasn't there, but uh, uh, those who reported on it said it wasn't just Ukrainian Israelis, but also Russian Israelis who were demonstrating as well. Uh, perhaps, um, you know, in sympathy with some of the uh, Russian dissidents or uh, uh, opponents in Russia who have taken to the streets in recent days and then been arrested. Uh, but it's quite a complex community because it's, you know, most, most Israelis, uh, you know, or most people around the world just think of 
you know, them as Russians. Uh, there, there was a joke going around that uh, if uh, President Zelensky made Aliyah because he has a right to as a Jew, he would just be considered another Russian, quote unquote. And in fact, obviously, he's not Russian in any way, shape, or form. So it actually is giving a, a you know a, a bit of color to the to the community and a, a greater understanding exactly where they stand. And they're not just all Russians uh, as, as some. So I appreciate the the questioner. Uh, making that differentiation as Russian speaking as opposed to Russians. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite complex, but uh, I think uh, it's playing it, itself out. In, and also, again, another layer which didn't mention is the fact that, you know, uh, for those who are Jewish or have a Jewish parent or Jewish grandparent or who are related to someone who does have the uh, possibility of making Aliyah. And Israel is um, preparing potentially for thousands or tens of thousands of Ukrainians who want to make Aliyah or even who want to just come to Israel for a month. Um, there are hotels being emptied out <clears throat> and being given for free uh, for tourists or for potential Olim uh, to come to Israel. So Israel is also uh, preparing for that. And obviously it cares very much about the Jewish communities in these places. Um, and also today, uh, when it turned out that um, there was a rocket fired over the Babin Yar Memorial, to those who were uh, massacred in the uh, Babinia uh, massacre, that also played into it. And in fact, uh, President Zelensky wrote a tweet in Hebrew. Obviously, he didn't write it, one of his advisors did, and apparently has a few Israeli advisors uh, that actually referenced that and even referenced the, uh, the motto never again. Uh, so it's clear trying to, try to uh, reach not just Israel, but the Jewish community as a whole to try and support, uh, support his efforts fully. Thank you so much. David Levine asks, what are the chances that Biden will remove his objections to the Israeli Cypriot uh, Greek gas pipeline to Central Europe? Uh, at the moment, not great. It depends. It remains to be seen whether the conflict and you know, what, what Russia is doing with its pipeline, whether it would, you know, after this, or maybe even during the conflict, whether they'll start looking at uh, to diversify. As I've said in previous um, webinars, uh, you know, Israel can play a small role. It's not going to obviously be able to see to Europe's energy needs in the way that Russia can. Um, but we haven't heard much uh, about it recently. Obviously, President Biden is uh, otherwise engaged. Yes, certainly so. Uh, Jerry Wiener asks, uh, Iran seems on the brink or close to creating a nuclear weapon. What are the options? Well, we should, uh, we should differentiate between having a nuclear weapon and having uh, weapons-grade uranium. We've spoken about that also in the past. Iran is very close, weeks, months away from having weapons-grade uranium. That's not the same as having a nuclear weapon because they also have to be able to fit it to a missile, to test it, etc. And that's probably around two years. Um, but, you know, uh, having, having weapons-grade material is arguably the, the, you know, a, a major step, if not the most important step. So that's why Israel sees, you know, this time is extremely important. Uh, as I said, you know, I think there's very few people around the world who, who don't understand that Iran is only a few months. Those who are supportive of a return to the JCPO use that as a justification for speaking up that process. Um, uh, but Israel obviously has, has uh, other ways of looking at it. But as far as actually having a nuclear weapon, 
they're probably a couple of years away from that, but certainly every single day they get uh, a little bit closer and that certainly worries us greatly. Thank you. Uh, so while Israel as a country needs to walk a fine diplomatic line with Russia, Carrie Hillebrand asks, have any Israelis answered Ukraine's call for foreign volunteers to join the fight? Yes, uh, the Ukrainian embassy in Tel Aviv did put out, um, I believe like many other places in the world, and it's, I don't know the numbers, I'm not sure if anyone knows the numbers, and certainly it's not something that uh, you know Israel would admit to, but there are quite a few Israelis in the Ukraine who are fighting there. Uh, some of them are dual citizens, uh, and some of them are Israelis, uh, because the Israeli reporters always seem to be able to find every night of the news, different Israelis uh, who are in Ukraine fighting, who have gone there to help in, in various capacities. As, as I said, Israel sent out many medical crews uh, as well. Uh, but it's clear that there are some, again, I don't know if it's tens, hundreds, I doubt if it's thousands, but uh, there certainly have been some Israelis who have uh, taken the Ukrainian government up on that. Thank you so much. And in our last minute here, Peter Chu also followed up on his former question. Has Israel been the target of uh, Russian disinformation and scapegoating in the same way that the US and NATO have been? And if so, can you give an example? Uh, no, um, it's, to the best of my knowledge, again, I'm not a Russian uh, speaker, so I'm not gonna be targeted by Russian language propaganda, but I haven't seen uh, much um, Apparently, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff on social media. Both sides are trying to put out as much information, stroke disinformation as possible. That's part of modern warfare. That's part of the psychological aspects to modern warfare. Um, but uh, Israel is not seen as an enemy um, by Russia in the way that NATO is and the West is. So I don't think, you know, with everything has their limits. And when you have limited resources, Israel is certainly not a, a country of a, a great concern to be seen as, you know, to sort of try and change the minds of the quote-unquote enemy. As I said, Israel is playing an outsized role in, in, in diplomatic efforts, but, um, you know, Israel with only uh, 9 million people is not going to have uh, a, a great say on the, you know, on the, on the global opinion stage. So uh, I haven't seen or really heard of anything like that. Understood, thank you. All right, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Benjamin Weinthal discussing Germany's increasing support of pro-Iranian pro regime. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.